When you're faced with adversity, do you flounder or fly? I'm Simon Ratcliffe, and on Turning the Tables, I share candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. In each episode, I will dig deep to uncover the mindsets that turn adversity into advantage. Welcome to the Turning the Tables podcast, episode two, The Reinventor. Born in the leafy town of Tunbridge Wells in the Kent countryside, 70 years later, my guest, Derek Woodgate, is a practicing futurologist. He has just presented at the Happiness Summit in Dubai on happiness and smart cities, but that doesn't even begin to paint the picture of Derek's life. His journey has taken him to study at the University of Zagreb at the age of 16, releasing an album and three singles as part of a band in his early 20s, joining the Foreign Office as a translator, then a pivot of 360 degrees to become a senior marketeer in a global jeans business as President of Europe. And that's where I met Derek. The journey took another shift when Derek moved to Austin in Texas to set up a futures consultancy, which was conveniently located near to MIT's offices in Austin. MIT obviously being a centre for technological development. Just to add a further flourish, he speaks seven languages and has lived in 11 countries and 21 cities. You might be forgiven for thinking that Derek has led something of a charmed life, but it was anything but that when at the age of three, his father died and he was left by his mother to live with his aunt and uncle. He was literally abandoned. And that's where our discussion began. Welcome to the show, Derek. Great to have you here and thanks for agreeing to share your your story. I think by any standards, you've led a very full life. Well, hopefully I'm still leading it, of course. <laughs> and I'm trying very hard, actually, to, um, to ensure that the next 50 years is as, you know, as good as the previous 70, right? Well, I think anything's possible, isn't it, Derek? Anything is possible. Well, I'd like to take you back to those early years. That must have been a pretty difficult time for you. Yeah, it, of course, I, I'm not sure that um, I could really re- recall the full story. Although, I, I mean, I have my, my, my experience of that is one thing, which is, you know, obviously the, the sensory aspects of it, which I can remember and I'm, I'm happy to talk about. The, some of the other things, what actually the, the actual background to it, I learned subsequently, you know, later from my, from my adopted parents, right? So it was a little different. And then, I, and then actually when I was 31, I met my real mother for the first time and that was a disaster, but it also filled a few gaps into the story. So, and that was it. So, yeah, I mean, the one, th- so my father died when I was two. And I personally, I don't actually really know so much about that, and nor do I particularly recall it. And I, I think part of the reason was is because he was in hospital the previous year, the whole year. Um, he died of TB, which um, seems a little odd today because uh, since penicillin, people don't die of TB. But this was in um, 1949, and he'd been ill actually since he really got back from the war. He was um, uh, a naval 
officer and I do have his medals actually which is sort of interesting he was a naval officer and fought in the um, the bulk the the Baltic Sea and also very very much you know the whole area around sort of the the, the, the very cold areas of uh, of the north right of northern Europe and um, yeah he somehow contracted TB and um, pretty well you know a year after getting back he was hospitalized I don't think he actually ever came out um, that's the story at least as far as I understand it so I don't really remember him only from pictures and subsequent things so my adoptive parents gave me a couple of things that belonged to him like a book he wrote and things like that anyway I was still living with my mother I went with my mother and I was born in Royal Tunbridge Wells and um, she was from near Newcastle Jarrow actually and so she took me to the north to the northeast um, and I do recall parts of that not particularly well but and I do remember little bits of it because you know by then I was three so I can sort of it's more of that landscape feeling right that you have a sense of a landscape you have a sense of smells and colors and interaction right with this mother who wasn't particularly nice to me and then one day we got on a train and she left me with my uncle my uncle and aunt my father's brother and his wife at the station in Tunbridge Wells and didn't tell me, of course, that she was leaving, but told me I was going to be staying with them for a while. And that was it. I never saw her again until I was 31. And in actual fact, then by I met her by default because um, my half-sister, I had a half-sister, found my birth certificate um, in the house and realized she had a half-brother and contacted me through the Charlie Chester column in the Daily Star, a newspaper I'd never heard of because at that time I wasn't living in the UK. And I was visiting the UK. And anyway, the, the, the star arranged for a visit with my mother um, because it was Mother's Day on the Sunday. And they wanted to make a nice story about it. So I was going to say, from I think if one told that story in today's context of, of someone being left by their mother when their father had died, you would look back and say that's a pretty traumatic event for anybody. <laughs> yeah. and it was and it was very very odd and I never saw her again because she was awful <laughs> so anyway but my life with my um, adoptive parents who had actually adopted me when I was six I think I had to go to court and you know the court always asked you these questions like um, so they took me when I was three but it, I think it took until I was six to actually be officially adopted because I, I looked at the adopt- adoption certificate the other day and um, and they took me in and became my parents and to be fair my father was the most magnificent person I've ever come across and to this day I sort of feel him feel him sitting on my shoulder um, and advising me he was a great mentor actually um, so he was like outstanding and he you know, he was a good sportsman and you know one of those guys that died far too early because he smoked too much and apparently sell um, his food for cigarettes when he was a POW <laughs> that sort of guy not very clever in that sense and um, uh, he he was great wonderful and you know to this day I sort of feel his spirit in me my mother my adopted mother actually was a very good functional mother she worked they both worked um, but she really had it down and my issue about that was that she wasn't really loving wasn't attached I think that's more of a word. I'm not even suggesting that she wasn't in her own way loving. And she taught me lots of things and she was quite strict, but she taught me to cook. She taught me to look after myself. Um, she taught me to be pretty disciplined in general, which have been good traits throughout my life. There just wasn't the love, you know, that one would 
expect between a son and mother, I suppose. And so I put a lot of pressure on my father, on my adopted father. And, you know, subsequently, um, through therapy, my therapy once said to me, so your father actually didn't really include your mother very much within your relation, you know, your relationship with him. And I said, well, actually, that's true when I think about it. And he said, well, do you think it was only about the, you know, the, your mother not being attached? Or do you think he sort of unattached you in a way by being so loving and doting because he felt he had to take care of his brother's son? And, and you know, there was something to that, right? I mean, he and I were like a, a couple and to a certain degree she was excluded from that. And a lot of it was to, down to interests, intelligence, areas of discussion and debate. My father's a great debater um, and you know me and so you would know that that came from a very early age that I have lots of really serious debate, particularly political debate and therefore we take different sides and that sort of excluded my mother to a certain degree because that was not her you know, area of interest whatsoever. At this point in the interview, I wondered what psychological effect this might have had and whether he was aware of its effect. So I asked Derek that question and his response was fascinating. The outcome of all this was that I ended up, according to my therapist, having serious abandonment issues because I do remember like when my mother left me, I was crying, obviously I didn't want her to leave me. With hindsight, one could argue it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But, you know, when you're a two-year-old kid, three-year-old kid, that doesn't seem to be the, um, you know, where you feel about it, right, obviously. And um, I also, it also meant that I had serious attachment issues to females. Um, and that wasn't helped by the fact that I went to an all-boys school as well, at high, you know, from high school. So I went to a mixed school as a uh, primary and junior, but then ended up for, you know, six years at a an all-boys school, and that clearly didn't really help uh, my integration into the, the attachment world of females, and, you know, um, we'll get to that, but that's obviously had a bit of a bearing on my somewhat crazy relationship life subsequent to that. How do you reflect back on that in terms of the impact you think it's had to life and, and the things that you've done in your life? Well, the most critical thing that comes out of abandonment is a need for love, obviously, and recognition, right? So, well, that's recognition generally through love, but, you know, equally recognition in other aspects so that the world, lo that someone loves you, right? That the world loves you, that your school pals love you, that the girl next door loves you, right? I mean, that's a sort of a, a very direct part of that. And, and what I would say that from a very, very early age, that was very present in my whole life. And, and continues to be present. And one could argue that um, at its core, there are negative implications of that. As it happens, certainly in the broader sense of it, I would say that it's, it was really made my life, right? I mean, it, it became a foundation for my future and, and still continues to be so. So I think that purely from a, you know, from a cognitive point of view, there were definitely negative undertones. And, and they were played out from a very early age in, you know, wanting to help everybody, right? You know, always be the person to put up their hand and say they would help someone or do something. And um, I'd be the one that, you know, if I was going to the shop or I'd ask my mother, do you need anything to the shop? You know, even if I wasn't going. And I'd say, I need to go to the shop, you know, even though I didn't have to go to the shop, just so I could actually go and help, sort of look to be helpful 
by going to the shop to do something for her, you know, and I automatically became, some of these things became habits for her as well, right? So Saturday morning, if I wasn't playing football, I'd be going to the shop, you know, she sent me to the shop from a very early age, by the way. I'm talking about, you know, eight or nine, you know, around that sort of age. And a lot of that comes out of my ultra willingness, you know, and I was always, um, I wouldn't say easily influenced. I don't think I'm well, certainly, you know, not long after that, I didn't. I was became sort of much less easily influenced. But I probably was, you know, as a, you know, if there were teenagers around, I'd probably do some of the naughty stuff that teenagers did when I was a young kid, just to be liked by them, right? To be part of the group, to have a sense of belongingness. And I think that one of the biggest issues within all this is I probably didn't really have a true belongingness, a, you know, a holistic sense of belongingness. And I think that a lot of the time in my very early teen, teen years at school, you know, I'd be the guy to carry the books. I'd be the guy to go and get the chalk. I'd be the guy to go and do whatever teachers expect you to do back then. And, and that trait, you know, led me to become a singer in a band from the age of 14. And that continued through for many, many years. You know, wanted I'd always be the, you know, the person who wanted to act in the school play. Um, you know, I love stage. I love to be on stage. I love recital. I was always happy to be the first person in the class to, to read a poem or to read a piece. And which throughout all my life, it was, it's been a trait. And it took a long, long time um, for it to change. Can you now, in your own mind, relate that back to the early years and what happened to you? Yeah, I think that I think that you know different things that happen, right? And I think most certainly that whole desire to be liked you know, at any cost was a critical aspect of that behaviour. You know, that literal that sense of behaviour. And I, I, you know, would say most probably um, to a certain degree, certainly the recognition part um, is present within me today. Is that recognition led me to learn, you know, Serbo-Croat or Croatian? Um, it learned, it taught me to want to, you know, it was unique. You can imagine when I first came to Yugoslavia uh, when I was 16. No one had heard of Yugoslavia in the UK. The fact that I actually learned to speak the language was completely odd. The fact that I learned to read Church Slavonic was completely insane for most people. I didn't know what it was. I think that what it all taught me to do, yes, initially to to want to do things to show off, and then ultimately to actually do them to prove that I could do them. It sort of sent me into challenges that that actually ultimately, you know, with time, once I got over the initial um, obsessiveness, um, you know, I found ways to get recognition that obviously stood, stood me very, very well throughout the rest of my life, right? And part of that also, it probably gave me the strength to take risks and to do things and to um, to to want to show I can do things and take challenges just because I've always told myself I could and um, you know often in work people would say well well we can't do that and I'd say yes we can even though I'd never any experience of doing it at all but I always found a way of working it out and doing it. And I think that's definitely a reflection of that combination of wanting to be special, therefore taking risks to be special, and those two things coming together, right, and, the rec and getting recognition. So in a way, Derek, it seems to have given you a, a tremendous drive to be inquisitive and to test your abilities. Well, I think that, you know, if you're an explorer or you like discovery, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of guy when I was a kid, you know, read the Encyclopedia Britannica, right? That's that type of person. You know? And tests, subsequent tests, you know, and Mensa tests and other things have shown that I'm very creative. I mean, that's just 
way it is. I'm lucky, right? But moreover, with a degree of excitement and enthusiasm. And that's probably the word. I think that, you know, the, the one word that will be on my tombstone if, will be enthusiasm. And, you know, enthusiasm doesn't get you all the way, but it gets you a long way because it does mean that you can, you know, make the effort. And if, if you look at your um, working life, yeah. I think one would say that, you know, you've taken on some serious jobs and, and succeeded in them. I mean, how do you contrast that with the things you've done in your life, like being in a band, playing football, all those kind of things? I think that what happened with work was, again, I had on one hand the enthusiasm to do whatever it took to do it, and excited, right, and a passion, I suppose, as people say. On the other hand, I sort of had the the desire to explore and to show off. And I mean, to going back to my to it being successful. You know, I wanted to be the best diplomat. I wanted to be the best uh, marketing person at um, VF or before that. You know, the head of um, global strategy at. Um, to be the head of global strategy at VVAT, and, and afterwards, as you know, because I ran the um, strategy department at, at uh, VF, you know, these were big jobs, but they were exciting, right? They took me into multiple lands. I went to countries that no one ever been to. I'd, you know, I'd done 110 countries when other people had been to six, you know. Was, so all these things are tied in, and you, and you have to go back to the beginning to say, well, yeah, that desire to be different and recognized and has led to sort of potentially having maybe an ego at times, right? I mean, that's these things these things have the good and the bad about them um, and you just have to hope that the the good ultimately outweighs the positive outweighs the negative right and that you don't come out as being a total dick but that uh, <laughs> which is very possible you know so going back to the the childhood I mentioned there were two issues that come out of, of this one being abandonment and the second being equally as traumatic actually tied into something I mentioned earlier about um, not having a relationship with my real mother my adopted mother and then girls when I was at high school was an issue of attachment right an attachment to women and so throughout most of my life I've had long-term relationships around the seven-year itch stage for whatever reason but some longer some slightly shorter but you know that type of relationship but as you know as my therapist would say all the time it was good you were in it the minute it wasn't you didn't you didn't deal well with difficulties that you that and and that goes back to not really being attached you know not not being truly attached right because you know now since i've been to therapy and four years of it i am able to be attached and it's a, you know you take the rough with the smooth right you you work through things you understand the values in having different values you know you understand the the, the significance and and importance of having different values and trying to match them in some way or accepting that your individuals have different views and that that's also good right and you begin to see the positives in the differences as opposed to not just wanting everything to be like you or everyone to sort of follow suit and you know that's very immature on the one hand to feel like that but number two it clearly does come out of that failure to attach through childhood yes i can i can see that and so you're saying that in, in many ways although obviously it was a very difficult time from lots of people's points of view that was something which has resided with you for um you know your life in many ways 
The first six months of therapy were absolutely horrifying for me because he took the approach that to break me down, to understand that I wasn't the golden child I thought I was, was the best way of dealing with that. And so I felt really bad about myself. You know, I suddenly thought rather than being this golden child, I thought I felt like an absolute disaster, you know. And then I said to him one day after about six months, I said, you, you know, you've totally ruined my life, my, my understanding of myself, my perspective, my self-reflection, you know, everything else. It's absolutely horrifying. And uh, he said, well, good. I said, well, I don't feel it's very good. And he said, well, you will thank me one day. And three and a half years later, I certainly thanked him. I had this protection, right? This self-protection that came out of both abandonment and attachment. This self-protection that all the time I was doing well, all the time that I would had recognition all the time I was loved all the time that I was able to demonstrate some success or other um, all things were fine and if that wasn't the case I had to go and recreate myself right in whatever way that was so if you look back and think about how these events and that adversity right at the beginning of your life affects the shape of your life and your career, particularly actually your career, how, how do you think it informed what you ended up doing? Well, I, I, I think there are two aspects come out of this. One is the, the repercussions of it, right? Having to deal with and let's call it adversity because obviously I have issues, I had issues because of that and it took a long time to resolve them. So clearly I wasn't necessarily aware of the adversity because kids don't necessarily know what all this means, right? And, and they have to carry it with them and some people learn the hard way and some manage to sort of get through it in some way, right? Um, I think that the, what it did to me, this sort of need for recognition, and I'll use the word recognition because I think it has a broader connotation than being loved or something, which is a, a different thing. But, you know, being loved has been a critical part of my personal life, right? I've always wanted to be loved. Hence, I've had, you know, these, you know, a number of long-term relationships and marriages, right? I mean, that's um, part of that. But what I think it did do was doing something unique, which was learning Serbo-Croat um, and actually learning to speak seven languages, as you know, which is sort of relatively unique. Not so much used today when, when we have lots of translation agents that can do it, but there you go. But it, it was what was fantastic about that was not actually um, so much the language, but it was learning the culture. It was learning to deal with diversity and adversity in very different environments. And I think it taught me to be more human and to be a better manager at work because it meant that I had to, I found it easier to manage people and to be with people and work with people and I think you know that part of my my enthusiasm for life has been the fact that I'm relatively liked I suppose or whatever you know social let's put it like that and that I suppose initially I, I, I drove it myself, but, you know, I am the guy that puts probably more than most people on Facebook about their lives. There's not frightened of telling people what they're doing. There's not fright. you know, I want to, I want to get that sort of, to share my life with the world, right? I'm not very insular in that sense. I'm not very individualistic in that sense. And so that's been good. Um, I think the other, th and, I, and I think, so, so that diversity, that ability to deal with diversity and adversity. So, you know, an adversity in complex situations has just made me a more rounded individual, I suppose, in that sense, but it culturally more rounded. So Derek, if, if adversity was a gift, what was the gift for you? 
Well, in short, I think the gift for me was the, and potentially not knowing it, because of course the adversity happened at such a young age, but was to have the desire and enthusiasm to be very good at things, right? Very recognized for being good at things, not just being good at them, but being recognized for being good at them and and creating a, a certain level of the uniqueness. And I think that's important because being yourself, being able to be yourself, probably one of the most rewarding, whatever that is, right? most rewarding gifts that you can give yourself. But that yeah. hasn't stopped you. I think what you're saying is it hasn't stopped you from having a, a very full and a very rich life. Yeah. I, I think that if I were to look at it as a recommendation to others, it really is that aspect of finding the uniqueness in yourself, you know, understanding the real the power that you have. I mean, in in in, in, in so many situations, you know, um, it's very, very easy in those circumstances to put yourself down, right? Knowing who you are, right? That is the most important aspect of all this with all the good and the bad, you know? I mean, I now know that I had a whole life that was influenced, certainly probably 40 years of it, by abandonment issues and attachment issues. I wasn't aware of that, but no, because I think that one has to focus on those qualities and read those qualities. You know, a lot of it's about, you know, reading or reflecting upon oneself and reading those qualities, both positive and negative, right? I mean, and adapting and and being really adapt. I'm a futurist. I know how much this world changes. And, and, And within all that critical thing, and I think that's my last thing I would say, is understand what your worldview is. Define it very, very clearly in terms of your values, your, the signifiers of those values, your anchors, what's anchoring your life, all those aspects that really are you know deeply within you the good and the bad and don't be critical of anybody else because they have different angles well Derek thank you so much for doing this being remarkably candid as I would have expected you to be but I'm sure that people have taken a great deal out of this uh, and can reflect on things that might be very helpful to them in their life so thank you Derek Well, thank you, Simon. Um, Enjoyed doing it, perhaps even with a little bit of enthusiasm, shall we say. But most certainly, I really hope that it resonates with all of us, not just those facing adversity, but on a bigger scale, but all of us that want to enjoy, enjoy and be happy within our lives, right? Great. Thank you very much, Derek. My pleasure. So what have we learned from this story of adversity? Well, Derek's story certainly confirms the Freudian theory that childhood events can have a profound effect on one's life, both negative and positive. But we've also learned that adversity doesn't necessarily hold you back from enjoying a rich life. Who knows how much of Derek's innate personality and character would have driven him to achieve all those things he went on to do. But either way, he achieved a great deal. For me, what shines through is someone who has constantly been able to adapt and to reinvent himself, driven by that need to explore and be recognised, and in his words, love. And someone who has subsequently been able to confront and understand the impact of his childhood challenges, embracing them with extraordinary insight and courage. I'd like to leave you with a quote. Life doesn't get easier or more forgiving we get stronger and more resilient. 
If you like this episode of Turning the Tables, you can find us and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and most other podcast platforms. Join me next week when I'll be delving into the world of lifelong learning with my guest, Kate Rizzi. Until then, go safely.